Welcome to Worldview from the Irish Times. Today we ask what the victory of Austria's bearded transvestite Conchita Wurst in the Eurovision Song Contest tells us about politics in Europe. And we hear about a newly discovered 14-year correspondence between Jacqueline Kennedy and an Irish priest. But we begin in Thailand, where a court has removed Prime Minister Yingluck Shinawatra and several ministers from office, and protesters are demanding the removal of the rest of the government. Thailand has faced a power struggle since Ms. Yingluck's brother, Thaksin Shinawatra, was ousted by the military as Prime Minister in a 2006 coup. Thaksin's policies were hugely popular in rural areas, and both of the elections since the coup have returned Thaksin-allied governments to power, but they were opposed by an urban and middle-class elite who accused them of corruption and abuse of power. So what next for Thailand? I'm joined by our Asia correspondent, Clifford Coonan. Clifford, the Prime Minister has now been ousted, so what do the anti-government demonstrators want? Well, basically, uh, the anti-government protesters who are led by a former deputy prime minister uh, are looking for reforms. Um, They want to rule uh, by interim government, which wouldn't necessarily be elected, but it would just be a kind of a ruling council uh, to try and undo what they describe as the 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 corruption that was um, that took place under under Miss Yingluck's rule, and um, basically the. the supporters, he, the the leader of the of the opposition, Sutap Taug Suban, has moved um, his his people into uh, from. They were in a city park downtown, and they've moved uh, into the uh, the parliament building now. And um, they're calling for the Senate to do something and to to uh, introduce this interim government. And who are the opposition, or what forces in the society in Thailand do they represent? Um, they're basically made up largely of uh, of the Bangkok ruling elite, and they would tend to be royalists, and they would tend to be middle class or or even uh, upper class people, which would be in contrast then to the supporters of of Miss Yingluck um, and and her brother uh, Taksin uh, Shinawatra, who would be largely sort of the the poor people from the northeast and. Uh, and also the poor in Bangkok. And now that the Prime Minister is gone, does that mean the end of her family's influence? Well, it, 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 the Taksin has rese- remained a very potent uh, figure in the 10 years that he has been since uh, this crisis began. Um, and he's basically, a lot of people are saying that he's running the country in some ways from Dubai um, by Skype. Um, but, so we're very unlikely to see an end to the Shinawatras influenced after she was elected he he described her as as his clone clearly he is behind a lot of what's going on here and i think even though they've been removed now it's very difficult to see how they could disappear from sight because they have this ability they're hugely popular the family is hugely popular uh, and they have this ability to win elections so unless there's something done unless thailand goes ahead goes forward without democracy uh, it's very going to be very difficult for the for the Shinawatra family not to remain a potent force there. Now, speaking of democracy, there are elections due in July. Are they going to go ahead, or what can we expect from them? Well, it's not it's not uh, clear whether they will go ahead or not because um, the opposition are saying that they 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 won't respect the the elections uh, as they did in a previous poll a few months ago. They said they they basically um, rendered that meaningless as well. So they say they won't take part. The the interim leader, Niwatrum Rong Boon Boon Song Paisan. I hope my pronunciation is okay. Um, 
who was appointed in Miss Yingluck's place, uh, he said that the election is the only way to resolve the turmoil and that, and that reform should be implemented by a new government following those elections. So certainly the, the, the popular leadership, will, uh, the current government, will, will push ahead for the elections to take place. Clifford Coonan, thank you. From the fading light of life Conchita Wurst singing Rise Like a Phoenix, Austria's winning entry at the Eurovision Song Contest in Copenhagen last Saturday. It was Austria's first Eurovision victory since 1966 and the first winning entry ever to be performed by a bearded transvestite. As usual, most of the excitement surrounded the voting, with the Russian jury getting booed by the audience in Copenhagen and Europe's complex web of alliances reflected in who gave what votes to whom. So what does the event tell us about today's Europe? I'm joined by Karen Fricker, the Irish Times Eurovision expert, who was in Copenhagen for Saturday's show. Karen, first of all, Conchita Vorst, everybody expected the voting for Conchita Vorst to go one way, but it didn't go quite as predicted. Well, she she was a, a competitor that really surged in the week of the contest. After she performed in her semifinal, it was an extraordinary performance. Um, it really was quite riveting and and highly political. And then the the she started to rise and rise in the polls. But it was still thought that it was probably going to be either the Dutch or the Swedish contestant that was going to win. So it was. It, I mean, that's what makes Eurovision exciting and fun is when you when it's not a set accompli who's going to win. So it really only became apparent about halfway through the voting that, in fact, it, it was going to be her. And one of the uh, predictions had been that Western Europe might vote for her and be in, uh, be sympathetic, uh, whereas uh, the Eastern countries would be uh, less accepting of uh, of somebody with that kind of gender identity. And this was, I think, um, amongst the most welcome uh, aspects of this year's Eurovision, the extent to which that was proven absolutely wrong. And these binaries that we have of, you know, civilized West and barbarian East who, who don't understand difference the way we do just simply have been disproven. The Eurovision voting these days is conducted half by expert juries and half by the public. And the public votes in many countries um, outside of Western Europe went in favor of Conchita Verst. For example, she got points in Russia, which was really seen as kind of the, the locus or the ground zero of of anti-gay feeling this year. But what I think this vote has shown is that that is um, anti-gay feeling and anti-gay uh, uh, policy is coming from the top down in Russia, but in fact, uh, it's not shared by, by everyone in that country. And I think that that's really welcome, solid information for us to work with. There was plenty of anti-Russian feeling in evidence, at least in the auditorium in Copenhagen, and even the uh, Russian performers uh, received a pretty rough uh, welcome, didn't they? Yeah, and I think that's something that was quite we talk was talked about a lot amongst the Eurovision fan base and journalists and everyone who was around the contest this week was how fair is it to subject performers, artists who are there to do their job, which is the thing, uh, to to that kind of abuse. And the girls, uh, the, the Russian performers are 17-year-old twin sisters. I mean, they're pros. They, they actually won the junior Eurovision Song Contest several years ago. So they're, they're troopers. They've been around the block. But it, they, they did not get booed during their semi, semifinal. The, the voting did. When it was announced that Russia got through, that, that got huge boos. 
they were actually booed on the night in the final, not as loudly. And I mean, it's that's unfortunate for the artists, but by the same token, this is 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 a stage for politics to be played out. And the the booing, I I believe. I mean, I'd have to ask every single person who booed to know exactly why they were. But I think it's been widely read that that um, people were trying to make their negative response to current Russian aggressions aggressions in Ukraine known. And also because uh, Eurovision is an event that's very much embraced by LGBTQ people and um, known to be a celebration of difference, it was also a, a, a response to the homophobic laws that have come down in in Russia in the past year. Just finally, uh, in Ireland, there's been uh, a very small and rather muted amount of uh, of uh, angst going on about the fact that we uh, fared so badly and we haven't been faring all that well. What does it say about uh, a country like Ireland, uh, do you think, when you look at how terribly well we did at a time when we were rising as as an economy and then seem to have lost interest? Well, um, interestingly enough, um, I co-edited a book about Eurovision last year called Performing the New Europe, and Professor Brian Singleton from Trinity College Dublin contributed a chapter to the book about exactly that about the fact that back in the day when Ireland was still an, an up-and-coming European country before the boom, Eurovision mattered hugely um, to, to us in Ireland. And then once, uh, once Ireland started to have a much higher identity and profile and more kind of cultural power and economic power, Eurovision started to fade in importance. Now, of course, we're in a very different place now, kind of post the bust. And I think it's, it's welcome news that RTE announced after Ireland started to fail to qualify this year, that they're, they're going to seriously rethink their approach to the contest because I, Ireland is completely out of step in terms of the kind of acts it, it puts forward with, with the current kind of trends and norms in the contest. And if, if RTE wants to, to play to win in Eurovision, and I think that's an open question, but if they do, they, there really needs to be kind of a root and branch look at what what kind of acts Ireland is putting forward because Ireland is full of talented musicians and artists and we we haven't been we haven't been sending acts that really fit. And what kind of act should we be sending? Well, one that uh, is thoroughly produced from the top down and one that acknowledges that that this is at in this day and age very much a, a, a televisual spectacle where you need to really Think about how things look on screen, and think about coherence as well. Of course, you want to send a great singer. You want to send. A, you want to send a great song. You want to send something that that looks and sounds like contemporary pop music, and you want to have people on board who really understand how to how to make the camera work really um, really complement the song. And you look at a country like the Netherlands this year, which came kind of from nowhere to come second. They produced their stage act as if it were a music video. They did, the performers did not look at the audience. They looked at each other, and they completely controlled the camera work. So it was incredibly striking um, in the TV broadcast. It didn't look like anything else. And it was also great singers, great song, and they got a really great result. Karen Fricker, thank you. In August 1950, 21-year-old Jacqueline Bouvier, the future Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis, visited Dublin for the first time and struck up a most unlikely friendship with Father Joseph Leonard, a 73-year-old Irish priest. They began an intense correspondence that lasted 14 years until Father Leonard's death in 1964. 
Jackie Kennedy's letters to Father Leonard reflect her most private thoughts on everything from her fears before their marriage about John F. Kennedy's womanizing nature to her grief and anger after his assassination. These letters, which have never been published, will be sold at auction in June. And Michael Parsons, who writes about auctions for the Irish Times, has read them. Michael joins me now. Michael, who was Father Leonard and how did he and Jackie meet in the first place? Father Leonard was an elderly priest in Dublin and Jackie had been given his name by a relative. And when she came to Dublin on her trip in 1950, she looked him up and that was their first meeting. They only actually met twice in their lives in 1950 and again five years later. Why did she feel free to pour out her heart to him? Well, reading the letters, it seems that they really hit it off very well. I mean, it's very strange because Jackie was 21 and Father Leonard was in his 70s. But the two of them struck up this extraordinary bond and seemed to have a really good, fun time in Dublin in August 1950. And when Jackie then left Dublin to continue her travels, she was doing a little trip. Uh, She went to Scotland and wrote her first letter An incredibly warm letter, and that was the beginning of a 14-year friendship. When she went back to America, she kept Father Leonard informed about the various men she was meeting, uh, including a man that she was engaged to before she met John F. Kennedy. And then when she met John F. Kennedy, she told Father Leonard about that. Now, she was quite clearly smitten with uh, JFK, but she had some misgivings too. What were they? She was very excited about uh, John F. Kennedy and she told Father Leonard that she was in love with him. We think he's the first person who knew about this. But she expressed her doubts about him because she said he was an incredibly ambitious man. In fact, she compared him to Macbeth and she was worried that his career would be all-consuming and that marriage would be a very secondary thing for him. But she was also worried that he might be a womanizer like her own father, Jack Bouvier, and this concerned her. But in the end, she decided in a wonderful quote in the letters that a senator needs a wife. And she went ahead and married him a year later. And she seemed, uh, certainly initially, she seemed to rather enjoy marriage more than she expected she was going to. Yes, very much. And she writes to Father Leonard about how happy she was about moving into a wonderful new house with with JFK. And then, of course, uh, she came back to Ireland to visit her great friend, Father Leonard, with her new husband, who by then was a senator. And they came to Dublin in 1955. Now, the other thing is uh, that emerges from these letters is that she quite clearly liked Ireland a lot, that uh, she, she was taken with it almost from the moment she got here. She loved Ireland and seemed to have fallen in love with Dublin. And one of the very big surprises, I think, in this correspondence is that Jackie had a relationship with Ireland before she met the Kennedys. And I think this will surprise people in Ireland I think it will greatly surprise people in the United States, particularly the Irish Americans, who I think some of them thought maybe Jackie was a little bit aloof and didn't like Ireland very much. I think she actually, because it comes across in some of these uh, interviews that she gave to Arthur Schlesinger in 1964, it came across uh, that uh, she was a little bit wary of the Irish mafia, but these were the Irish-American mafia around Kennedy, as opposed to the Irish-Irish themselves, as it were. Now, Father Leonard was clearly rather a, a worldly priest, and he enjoyed the finer things in life. But Jackie also wrote to him quite a lot about her religious faith. How religious was she? 
Well, again, I think reading the letters, one is struck by how deeply religious she was and how important her Catholic faith was to her. And she was very grateful and writes regularly to Father Leonard for sending her books, for example, about the lives of the saints. And uh, uh, the most poignant aspect, I think, in all of this correspondence is she writes about how the, the dreadful events in Dallas in 1963 and indeed other, other tragedies in her life really strained her Catholic faith and how she was struggling to make her peace with God in 1964 after those terrible events. Jackie wrote two letters to Father Leonard after the assassination. What did she say in those letters? Well, I think the the most poignant thing she said was that she was bitter against God. Uh, but then she went on to say that this was troubling her very greatly. She didn't want to be bitter. She said she didn't want to bring up her children feeling this bitterness. And she told Father Leonard that she was trying to make her peace with God. And she asked him to pray for her and said that she was praying too. And it's clear from the letter that her relationship with God was very important Obviously, it was terribly undermined by this unbelievable tragedy in her life, but she seemed to be determined to to, to rediscover her faith. Uh, Jacqueline Kennedy was a famously private person, but she was also among the most written about women in the world. What do these letters tell us about her that we didn't already know? What they tell us, I think, is this is Jackie in her own words, and that's quite extraordinary to hear Jackie talking about herself, her most private thoughts from the age of 21 until 1964. Michael Parsons, thank you. Thank you. And that's all from this edition of Worldview. You can read more about all our stories on irishtimes.com and you can contact us at worldview at irishtimes.com. From producer Sinead O'Shea, sound engineer JJ Vernon, and from me, Dennis Staunton, goodbye. <laughs>